Welcome, movie lovers, back for another Anatomy of Movie here on Popcorn Talk. Today, it's Molly's Game, the true story of the 26-year-old behind the most exclusive high-stakes underground poker game in the world. Stay tuned as we talk about it. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Grab your cards. Grab your bets. Grab your chips and enjoy the game. We have Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. We have Dimitri Panos returning for 2018. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year, movie fans. Great to be back. There you go. And I'm happy to be back to talk about a really good movie. Yes. Aaron Sorkin's director... Directorial. Directorial. Yeah, but that was a word I couldn't... I knew I would butcher, so... (laughs) Almost like sartorial, except it's directorial. Yes, his uh, <laughs> his debut as a director, Aaron Sorkin. Uh, lots to talk about, both behind the camera, in front of the camera, and so forth. But a couple of things right off the bat. First off, welcome to you, fans. If you're joining us for the very first time, a very special welcome. If you're returning, a very special welcome to you as well. We assume that you've seen the movie, so this is your spoiler warning for the day. And thirdly, you can get our rundown in the description box that we can follow along see our notes and so forth you know some of the stuff we do pull out some of the stuff is uh beneath the iceberg as they say but as we always do we start with overall impressions so ladies first uh, i really enjoyed this one i am a big fan of aaron sorkin like newsroom and of course uh i, I wasn't a part of the west wing generation but uh, i do appreciate his writing he's very fast paced and very fast dialogue speaking and i can attest to that so uh, like i love his music his music i love his movies and and just his writing style because i feel like i can keep up with it and actually understand <coughs> what he's saying which is great uh i i think he he's he did a really great job in this movie not and watching it i didn't realize this was he was directing it this is his first directorial so to speak and it didn't seem like he missed a beat honestly because he's been doing it for so long so i think he did a great job in in that aspect i love jessica chastain and i will watch anything she's in and uh, i will went in knowing it was going to be a lot a lot of dialogue a lot of things to keep up but i went in and and i left it i was like yeah that was was very solid yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a really, I, I think it's a very good film. Um, regarding Aaron Sorkin, he's done well uh, as a writer, obviously, um, both TV and film. Uh, but he's also done well in surrounding himself uh, with great talent. So when I watched this movie, there were hints of like David Fincher in here, which like. No surprise, because he's gone to David Fincher for a few of his flicks that 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 uh, he's written, and his dialogue was really great. And I think from a, for a directorial debut, it was actually pretty good. It was really well well done. Maybe there were some pacing issues in the middle towards the end, but other than that, like there was nothing about it that was overly flashy. It looked like a movie. It looked as if there were times where it wasn't directed. Like, and you like those where you don't point out, oh wow. That was directed. Uh, Jessica Chastain, I think, is uh, an incredible performance here. Uh, and and I learned something. Like, there's this whole, that whole underworld of poker, which was sort of brought up in the movie Rounders. 
great film. Um, which is a really good movie. But but this is more the elite, where Rounders is more in the bars and stuff. This was the higher end, outside of leaving that first club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> That's you know, Then it goes to the Four Seasons and then to Trump Plaza in New York and such. And it's, while as glamorous as it was, there was still the seediness of it all. And the people who would be involved. Uh, so I, I found that to be very fascinating. It was great to see Kevin Costner. Uh, he just, he still can act. He's really good. And Idris Alba, I thought, was perfect choice to play opposite of Jessica Chastain. I think casting for an Aaron Sorkin movie is very um, important. And if it's done wrong, they're going to fumble over the dialogue. You know, he has a very specific way in which he wants his dialogue to be spoken. And I think this movie was cast perfectly for that because everybody was great with his dialogue because he can be talky. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and, and the movie really looked good. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline as well um, captured the time periods where we're at um, there were times like you're, you're actually feeling as if you were in a casino instead of you know instead of a suite so uh, I thought that was great the sound design with the clinkings of glasses and the smoke of it all like I felt like I was there uh, so it was really well done well, uh, Marissa and I promise to invite you one day for our high-stakes poker games that we've been doing for a number of years now. Oh, please. Please. Fortunately, <laughs> the Russian mob is not involved yet. Yeah, I, I can... Uh, $2 buy-in? Uh, not quite. <laughs> All right. Well, my thoughts, my thoughts on the movie, I overall enjoyed it. Uh, my one gripe with it was the subplot of um, The Scarlet Letter was slightly not as well executed because I thought a lot actually hinged on that. You mean The Crucible? The Crucible. Crucible. Yes. The Crucible. Yes, Wrong like movie. Yeah. <laughs> Wrong piece this of literature. Not <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Uh, I think the reason I made that connection is because Emma Stone was in contention, or at least in Sorkin's mind, to play for the role, and she was in... Um, Easy, a. Um, Easy A, which is about the Scarlet Letter. And so there you go. See, I got that connection. <laughs> anyway. Six degrees of uh, Emma Stone. <laughs> but so, yes, The Crucible, I, I felt that was, wasn't as highly executed. Everything else I thought worked really well. Uh, you could say some of the dialogue, especially early on um, in terms of her narration, was a little bit over excessive. I've heard a couple of people say that, including our engineer, Anthony, but I actually enjoyed it because it gave you her mindset and her outlook on the world and the, the mentality she was going into, you know, adulthood with. And I thought, I thought that worked really well. And I, I think the message ultimately of the movie, the Winston Churchill, which a quote that I want to definitely break down further with you guys, I thought was a perfect sort of hopeful ending to it all. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the overvoice because I personally I loved it. Uh, I thought, uh, yeah, I, I thought that it it worked so well 
in this movie. And, you know, that this is something that's usually reserved for film noir, detective kind of movies and such. And uh, I guess you can sort of call this a noir because there is that, that, that underlying seediness of it all. It was used to such, for me anyways, I thought it was used to great effect. It never took away. I, if I found that I was more engaged in the movie. It didn't bore me. And it actually drew me in. And the fact that, it was, you know, perhaps it was just, a, I think it, in large part, Jessica Chastain's performance and the reading of it all uh, in this movie, I did feel closer to the character and better understanding of what her thought process is from not being becoming an Olympic skier, why she took, why she ended up doing this. Like, it was all done through her voice, uh, voiceover, and I really liked it. And it was meticulous, you know, especially early on with the math of, like, what the, what the stakes of it all were. So you could see a natural tie into poker. Yeah, and also Sorkin said himself that uh, when he, for, for the conception, we'll definitely get into it, for the conception of just watching and why he had so much voiceover over the poker games while we're watching it, is that he himself has seen poker games, like the, the world tournament in when I and he says it's actually very visually boring um it's very it's it is a slower game to to watch so the only way that you can keep the audience engaged is if you make it faster make it overcut make a lot of voiceover it actually keeps you engaged and it and, keeps the audience watching and the irony of that being said is that for a short time um ESPN and Texas Hold'em Poker was one of the highest rated shows uh, uh, on TV. People were watching it for the drama unfold, and it actually made the um, uh, 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 the, the, the pen light camera popular mm-hmm. because yeah. that's what they used, you, you know, that. to see other everybody else's hands. So it's funny to hear Aaron Sorkin say that it was boring, yet were most of, uh, if not a lot, of America. That was the poker, the, the Texas Hold'em poker boon, in which online gambling was huge. Getting into the World Series of Poker, most anybody could, you know, I knew a person who, from online gambling, got a table at the World Series of Poker. So I, it's just really funny to say that he thought it was boring, but yet that's what drew people in in learning that game of Texas Hold'em poker. Yeah, I think it's ironic. I think he should have said, from my perspective, it's boring. Just to say I get enthralled in poker, and I, that's why I don't watch it, because I know I'll end up watching like 20 hours of it. You could, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, anyway, so... You know, uh, one of the, it's interesting. A lot, a lot of sort of tidbits go into this, and he was never. Not only was not interested in poker, he wasn't really interested in Molly Bloom or her story to begin with. And through all of this, you know, he met her, and then everything shifted because he saw the real her, the undertones that that created the story. And he was like, "Wait, wait, wait! What you're te- the story you're telling is not the story that's interesting." Right. So I appreciate that about him that he's able to find something different. Um, in both the, I guess, the poker and also in her. I think it's nice, too, because this is, I mean, I wasn't actually well aware of this story when it came out, and it wasn't that long ago in in real time from the time we're talking about it now. Uh, But I think it's interesting because it was a big story that apparently I missed. So people have this already, you know, set prejudgment of, of Molly and what the book is and how people view her. And I like how Aaron himself even admitted that he had snap judgments of her. But when he had a sit-down meeting, 
she herself and just her personality and her own story intrigued him enough to be like, there's something here. Let's talk about it. But Let's there was, show something. There was another. There was another factor that kept sort that the, why Sorkin had his reservations about this as well. He knew some of the people that she was indeed writing about. He was friends. He's friends with with a lot of these people, and. You know, he goes, He even told her, he goes, I know some of these people you've written about, and I've worked with some. He goes, others I'd like to work with. He goes, and if I'm going to go out and make a movie that gossips about them, that could, in a sense, ruin a friendship or two and maybe keep people from working for me. So he got over that, and I think they handled that in a really good way. And again, Living out here in Southern California, particularly in the mid two thousands, you did hear about these. Not, I, don't, I don't want to call them underground poker places, but these exclusive poker matches were celebrities like Matt Damon. You heard about him playing Ben Affleck and and, and such. Yep. These high profile celebrities, Rounders. yeah, were, were playing these games, uh, going to these high end type of games. So um, I find it very very fascinating, and I'm glad that he you know, eventually turned around, but he didn't even look at himself as being a first choice either. Well, we'll talk uh, uh, before we sure. before we fully get there. One of the things, a big divergence from the book to the movie is that in the movie, she had written the book before the trial. The book actually came out after the trial. So it's interesting in that sense. Uh, the, you know, part of the reason I bring that up is because when you speak about the, the actors and so forth playing poker... I I like the way they handled it in the movie in terms of his solution where it's – I'm only going to name the people that have already been named in the first indictment or whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and it wasn't her revealing it. It just came it out. Was out. And, yeah. and the fact that that was a big part of who she was, I won't reveal it. But if you force me to – you know, if you take the hard drives or whatever else and that reveals it, then I can't stop you. But it wasn't me. Right. And I really like that of just about her character and personality alone. She got so deep within this poker game, but at the end of the day, she still wanted to remain her integrity. And that's actually a very honorable thing. Yeah, and it's a great scene in the movie when she talks about, that's what I have. I have my name. Um, yeah, the, the, the whole thing, I like too, and that's the other part of Sorkin, where actually after the hours and hours of talking with Bloom, says, these are the best parts of the story because apparently the book ends uh, with her arrest from the FBI, which the movie goes beyond that. <clears throat> and uh, I like the way that Sorkin approached this because we didn't just get we didn't just get sorry about that we didn't just get a rehashing of a book we got beyond that. And to me too, that ended up being a very interesting story too. Um, did anybody research? I should have googled it, but I don't know who the actors were. Actually, I did find out that, who, who Player X was. So Player X, in the most part, is Tobey Maguire, the, the celebrity. But they also said they, they had an amalgamation of a lot of different yeah. high-name celebrities into Player X. So <laughs> it, it's like a lot of different personalities from a lot of different actors. But one of the main ones is actually Tobey Maguire. Yeah, and that, that was a Spider-Man era, correct? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was when he was yeah, big was in the heyday. early 2000s. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, yeah. That was his heyday for sure. Yeah, other people, you mentioned a couple, but um, Ben Affleck, friend of Matt Damon, you could see him, Leonardo DiCaprio, and, and so forth. And, I mean, you know, to me, like, what, what what's interesting about it, 
was it's a very cautionary tale, but for the most part, she actually wasn't I, – I really was fascinated by this idea that she wasn't breaking any laws if she didn't take a cut. And, right. you know, the, the point of the story really was she just too, it flew too close to the sun for her own liking and she didn't sure. do the background checks as she normally would and so forth. And had she continued in that very cautious path, she'd still be successful. We just wouldn't, you know, necessarily know about it. Yeah, and the, the other fascinating thing is it really is a tale of two cities. You know, I mean, New York, uh, when she moves to New York, it's, that's, that, that greatly differs, differs from L.A. And the people that she had, her clientele in L.A. was different than the clientele that she had in New York. Um, so uh, it, it just different, uh, outside of just location, the people that she was dealing with, um, completely different, far uh, how, how should we say? Um, I mean, it's interesting because they have, like, in, 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 in blunt terms and a gross overgeneralization, actors, in a sense, are narcissistic by nature. Sure. <laughs> and again, I'm sorry, like, I, I'm painting, That's like, true. a very dark side of actors. and then, But, you know, you have to be because you want, you don't necessarily want fame that, that some do, but just the mere fact of, like, oh, I want to, play all these different parts and so forth. There's and narcissism right. involved. Um, obviously, uh, money is a huge component of that. It might not be... There, there might be a more artistic driving force, but it's a huge component of that, so that's right. at play. Um, and in a sense, you could say the same thing for New York. So it is interesting, like, that the... You really have to get into the subtleties of it all, and I think that's where Sorkin does his best work, is because they... like. You know, in terms of symptoms, let's call them, they're quite similar. But the they way are. they express those symptoms are completely different. And, 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 and in L.A., you had the posh, you had the actors, right? Yeah. Where in New York, you had more of the bourgeois. <laughs> you, had, you had the Wall Street people. And you're right. There is that sense of narcissism that sort of kind of transcends. It doesn't matter. It's all, it really was about, pop, it was about money and, and mm-hmm. how much wealth they had to drop down on a table. Um, so and it was there was this, this competitive nature, too, about this. Yeah, and that, that was the vast difference between the LA players to to the New York because LA players it seemed like people of convenience, people who and they had a lot of Las Vegas players because Las Vegas is, sure. isn't that far from LA. So you had the people who just liked playing. Um, some are smart, some are not. Uh, and but when you move over to LA, er, sorry, when you move over to New York, you had the people who just have money. Right. You know, and that they're terrible players, but they have the money to to blow it on, um, and also just the shifts of the personalities too. Um, I, I felt like the people in LA really wanted power, compared to the people in New York just wanted money. Right, and yeah, and well, it's it's also and Marissa in a moment. I'm, so I'll prep you. I want I want to talk about the a woman in a boys' club essentially, but I'll talk <laughs> about it from the guy's perspective. And Dimitri, you're welcome to jump in too. You know, she it's one big boys club regardless of LA or or um New, New York. York and there is that sense of competition, you know, I think guys sort of have that especially if they're into poker, if they're into sports, they you're going to have that side to you and that's what drives you. And it's a sense of adventure. You know, when you have that sort of money, what can excite you? Well, the idea that at any moment I could just, you know, on the river card get a bad hand and all of a sudden I've lost a million dollars and it's like ooh alright well now I gotta get it back and, and you know unfor- there is that s- 
you know, it's the same way people race horses or other stuff. Like, I've seen stupider bets be made just over stuff. <laughs> yeah, there, there's that addiction aspect. But for, and I, I like that because we did see that in both of it both L.A. and New York. You saw the people who didn't know when to quit. Right. Um, and, like, I did enjoy that. For, for Jessica, for your, you know, question, is, you know, to, uh, well, Molly, <laughs> for, for the movie, to, to have the, the one female amongst all, all the alpha men, uh, like, it, I definitely saw that human interaction and just, like, her mentality because I love studying people. So I, and this is juxtaposed with all the scenes of Molly and her father. So you know that she has male issues. <coughs> There's male authority issues. Like, I always saw that coming, and I, and I loved, and we'll get to it, but the, the therapy, therapy session with her father in, in the park on the bench, that was one of the best scenes. It was. And but my favorite line in that was red herring. Yeah, that was a but I love that scene. You're right. It was yeah. brilliant. It's great, scene. and it explained everything that I was thinking. I was like, yeah, she did love controlling men, and I understand that from a woman perspective, it is hard to. How do you survive amongst a room full of powerful guys who can easily, uh, LA like completely screwed her over because well, they of both these guys? Did. Yeah, I, I know, yeah. but just like just learning from the LA group, it's just how quick. That they, they turned her back on her. She's like, okay, I got to do something to regain that control over all these guys again. And I, I definitely saw that power struggle. And again, I think, too, where, where the movie show, too, in L.A., for poker, it was the thing to do at that time. So these actors get involved. Hey, yeah, it's all poker. We're going to do this. There are only a few people who actually, you know, there was one person that she called a gambler. Um, then there was the, the, the Michael Sarah's character who basically player played X. it. Player X, who basically played it. He's, he's direct quote. I love destroying people's lives. Because I don't like the game, really. I really I like destroying people's lives. Where when you go to New York, it wasn't the thing to do. It wasn't the flavor of the month to do or the pretentious thing. These people just had money, and it was their way of power. Of, of like They could play these high-stake games... And then, you know, when the mob gets involved, uh, things, you know, can go awry. But those two are men of power. Uh, so I, I love that. I love the, the high glamour of L.A. set against the backdrop of New York business glamour. Yeah. It's just well, different. S- S- Chastain <clears throat> in particular, she praises, uh, and Marissa, if you want to pull the quote, because I think you did pull it. Um, she, she praises Sorkin for being able to write a female of this nature looking for the subtleties without, um, you know, being able to draw them out when none really existed in terms of a roadmap. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, you know, one of the sad parts is, as you said, Marissa, she's trying to figure out the rules and control men. And yet the sad part is at the whim of, of all these men, they just change the rules and say, screw you. Yeah, and uh, for that quote, uh, Jessica Chastain says about Aaron Sorkin, in all situations, Molly is trying to follow the rules laid out by men who change their mind depending on what their whims are. I think this incredible writer is able to touch that pulse while we're all still blind to it. And I think it's true because this is a game that she had really no control over. She had to learn about it and had to understand it just in order to properly set it up. Right. Um, And when... The, the guys changed literally the tables on her. She's like, crap, how do, how do I get the game back? There, there's a moment in the movie where she's like, and this is where I realize I lost the game. Right. 
Yeah, and it's 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 very sad in that way. Um, but that's why, to me, one of as as depressing as this movie can get in some some points of it, I really loved the ending quote. Uh, she just pulls out Churchill: "Success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm." Um, it's a quote that I had not heard before, and it was just so uplifting at that moment. You're mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. Right. And and I appreciated that about her, that she's just going to, no matter what, she's going to keep on fighting. Yeah. Yeah. And it was an amazing bookend to just the film alone. Where, sure. Like, the, the mentality of what's the worst thing that can happen to you in games, just in general. Oh, yeah, you, your body could physically be destroyed. But also, it's the mental game at the end when she actually gets up. Usually, like, I get knocked out, but I get back up again. So uh, it's the mental and physical just of game playing games in the world. Sure. As a general rule. Yeah, That's and fine. just in, 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 in her sense in that world, she, 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 she wasn't, or she, she still is alive today, but she was at that point of her life an entrepreneur, you know? And she took whatever experience she had from being a waitress in that club, knew what it took to get people to sit down, a hostess, uh, but she was bottle service, mm-hmm. uh, which I found very interesting. And she knew how to upsell very well. And by working, then when she gets hired by that creep uh, uh, who, who gives her the duties of the poker match, even even he was, even, even the creep was like impressed with what she was able to do to continually get these same people to come back to pour even more money into the game. And, you know, but it was all done with a, with a, it was done with a sense of service. I'm just providing a service for them. And the more the money that comes in, I get some money from that as well. So it only benefits me to serve them well in a legal, fashionable way. She ain't taking a cut. And uh, I found that to be very, very fascinating because that was a world that I I only knew of it on TV or on ESPN and well, gambling, but never that world. Well, it was also interesting both <clears throat> from uh, from an actress standpoint, but also from the character perspective that she had to dress the part. You know, uh, in particular, behind the scenes, Chastain writes, "Never did I have to for a movie care about my look this much." And with with her, you know that that was. That essentially was Molly's game, was playing this part, making sure she dressed the part. Because, you know, with the creep initially, he's like, what the hell are you wearing? Yeah, well, it's, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because Susan Change Lyle, clothes. who was the costume uh, person on this, you know, you, she talked about that. Her first L.A. poker game, she's wearing a dress from JCPenney. Nothing against JCPenney. But ultimately, if you're going to up dying. that game, you know, it was, you know, you had... And even the character herself liked dressing up. Uh, so basically, costumes, you know, Lyle guided her through. Molly had 90 costumes throughout the course of this movie. And she was attuned to what the character would do and think about how she would dress. And don't forget, too, there was hair. And when you notice all the different various phases, her, her rise and then her, her fall... Her clothing and makeup change to to bright, fashionable, wow, you look great, to you're looking a little worn there. So uh, it was very, uh, I found that, the, I noticed the costumes, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. 
you know. Apps. Yeah, I, I definitely noticed it, uh, the the difference between what she could be able to afford at JCPenney to now she was getting paid, she can actually afford high end fashion clothes. Yeah, she could go to wherever the heck she wanted, and uh, and I noticed her hair also changed because it it was messy and disheveled the first time, and then at the end when she's finally get arrested in New York, it's darker, it's longer, it's more sleek, it's more prestige. Um, uh, she has a prestigious look of someone who, not to say royalty, but someone who actually looks like a businesswoman. Mm-hmm. She was an entrepreneur. She looked she the part. She was. She looked fantastic. But again, I think that that too is part of her service. The people that she hired, the women that she hired. You know, she knew there was the more image. than the game of playing poker. There was the game of getting people clientele to come back. No. In reaching a particular clientele, she wasn't playing in seedy bars. No, no it's all it's all about the experience Perception. of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, shifting gears a little bit, this is you can say this is editing, but it's also storytelling. You know, in terms of the writing, the idea of going back and forth between the lawyer and slash present day, and then going back in time and until the two meet, and then we finished out the story. So I wanted, you know. Pacing-wise um, or otherwise, how did that work for you guys to go back and forth and you're getting all this information at the right time? I love that structure. I'm, I'm a big fan of nonlinear storytelling because it does eventually make sense at the end. You know, Nolan does a great job of nonlinear editing and storytelling. Um, one of my favorite movies, Pay It Forward, is also in the, in the same structure. It's like you get the little bit of what's happening in the beginning and then you go back to the beginning. Uh, very smart. I love it. It Not once was I actually confused because there was a lot of information in this movie. It's like it's verbal everywhere. It's dialogue everywhere. You could get easily lost within what's happening. But not once was I lost, in which I, I think it's a great job of just giving us all the information we needed to making sense of what's happening in our life and, like, and how people were treating her and what she had to do at certain points in her life. Um, I think it was very smart. Yeah, I felt it was done very seamlessly. There are movies in which it's very obvious. Oh, we're keeping going back to flashbacks. And so, and sometimes in those movies it becomes tedious. Uh, but I think, again, too, with, with voiceover, uh, with voiceover that really helped bridge that gap together very well because we knew what was going on. And being that it went beyond the book, like we're not just reading this. This story, it can it, we're, we're continuing to go forward and then come back into the present, but it also didn't do it in such a flashbacky way. Like there wasn't a time where like Jessica Chastain would go, oh yeah, and then we're back here. That's again, I, I use that word seamlessly because if you're not paying attention, you're just thinking of this story. It's not bothering you, and you're getting all the like Marissa said, you're getting all the information you need, and it was done through dialogue. Like, the way movies can be done. <laughs> you have to listen. You have to pay attention. And, and yeah, and Soren does a great job of setting up a, <clears throat> a, a like a joke. Like, the, the whole Crucible was a long film sure. um, running theme that just set up for a, a quick moment with Idris Elba's, like, now is the time you read the Crucible? That was it. That's the only reaction. But, like, my, my whole audience, when I watched it, had a big reaction to it. That was set up from the beginning, and it got a payoff in the end. She was, yeah, it was great. <laughs> yeah. And even the, the Olympic scene at the beginning, like, well, what's the first, or, like, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? That was a four-minute, four- to five-minute just rant of what could happen. 
just to have her one line at the end, like, fuck you. Yeah. 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 So, For the person like, who said he does coming a, and forth the yeah. Olympics, that was a great line. He does a great job of setting up, like, a long-winded story just to get a payoff in the end. That's that's Sorkin's style. Well, it's the payoff, though. It's the payoff. <clears throat> Many people can't work the payoff. They can't huh. stick the landing. Yeah. Well, well, what I appreciated about it was it was it was all those things working together. You know, generally... When you have a voiceover and the movie works without the voiceover, <clears throat> put it in the movie because it, it the the story doesn't hinge on the voiceover. It never should. And this movie in particular, I feel like, doesn't actually hinge on the voiceover. Which the elements to me that are at play is uh, number one, the voiceover generally is the book, right? So it's 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 Idris Elba, the lawyer, reading from the book, and it's kind of that side of it. Uh, and secondly, so that's why it bridges the two together. And oftentimes, you know, we see him closing the book and we're back to the present day because, you know, he was just finishing up a chapter or something like that. Furthermore, uh, I don't – I'd have to rewatch the movie for exact specifics. But the general idea being that if they're talking about, let's say, Player X and, you know, they talk just enough to get us so curious that when we cut, we're on Player X and we're answering that question because – that's what we want to know. And so it's right. satisfying our curiosity. First off, it's it's generating enough curiosity and then boom, getting right, right. to it. Mm-hmm. And how about the actual the actual poker player too? The guy in LA who loved he was there to gamble. Like he was the only poker he, he, she even said, like he was the only guy that was there to play poker. Because mm-hmm. he yeah. knew how to do it. Um, uh, Harlan Eustace. Like that that was a very interesting character. And they set up his rise and fall so <laughs> wonderfully well. <clears throat> that that character has like literally I don't know how long he's in the movie for a total. Fifteen minutes. 15 minutes yeah. Right? And that character has a full on arc, you know. And it was described and that's the other thing I appreciated about those overvoice is that he was described when he's talking about stories about his wife. She's like, he meant every single word he said. He loved his wife. He couldn't wait to give his wife the birthday party of her lifetime. He was so happy about it while he played, while he played. And then we saw that twist of fate and how it all went downhill for him. And also, it's like it is an addiction. That's why a lot of people do go in debt because of, you know, poker or or just whatever, you know, billiards game that you you choose. And I did like that when you're talking about arc, but that's Sorkin's writing style. He can get, and he writes so fast and so much in such a condensed time that a whole character can have an arc in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Um, Very well done. And you saw that slow disintegration of his character and felt that because he knew he was an actually good player. But he he just got caught in the game. And again, I lost. And I credit the actor, uh, Bill Camp, as well. He's a character actor. I credit, well, I credit all the actors because you need the right actor to pull that off. You have to believe in his jubilance when he wins and then the disparity that he hits. There was a time when he was outside on the balcony. Again, not having read the book, not knowing anything that's going on, I was thinking, he's going to jump. Like, mm-hmm. like, he might uh, jump right there. And then, so it was just, <laughs> you know, that's how low I felt that that character had gotten. And I only know this guy for 15 minutes. And his wife divorced him yeah. <laughs> like the next day. So he lost oh, he his money bottom. and his and his wife. Yeah. I was like, ooh, I'm, double hitter. I'm always fascinated. There's a lot of great books and articles and so forth about 
the psychology of gambling, but oftentimes they cite right before it's not really the reveal that's the most climactic it's right before the reveal because at that point two possibilities exist and you know obviously you're rooting for a singular one of what you want but your endorphins and so forth are just so high in that moment that that's the feeling you keep wanting to come back to gambler's high yeah um let's let's uh talk about idris elba because huge part and we'd be remiss not to in particular that amazing monologue that he has uh, towards the counter opposition we'll call them right i think it was great i think this was definitely i mean it was great writing great dialogue great execution by idris i think this was also a moment though and uh where i feel aaron sorkin needed someone to rein him in because he just let him go there wasn't actually a moment where where Jaffe, Char- Charlie Jaffe, that's his character, takes a pause to breathe, and he said everything he wanted to say, and then he keeps going for two more minutes. So I was like, that's where you would have cut it. It's like, all right, we, we got it, but he just kept going, and that's just how excessive the Aaron Sorkin <coughs> can be in his writing. Um, we know he's great at tirades, and it, it felt like this was also slightly contrived, so maybe Idris... If if you wanted to give Idris an Academy Award nomination, it would be for the scene alone. Yeah, I mean, I felt um, far far different role than the gunslinger. Yeah, and what I appreciated about this character uh, is he's an amalgamation of other people. Like the character himself, Chris, doesn't exist. Um, So, but you knew that she had a lawyer. But again, knowing that the book stops where she gets arrested, this is the part of the story that Aaron Sorkin chose to write about. Um, And I found that the character doesn't break that cardinal rule of when you're making up a character. Her story is written, and and, and in real life, how it ends, and and she gets, I don't want to say she gets off, but it could have been much harsher. So we know that there was lawyers behind it. So this character doesn't really affect the real-life outcome of, of that. And when you have Idris Elba and you bring in the daughter, I felt that the daughter was an extremely important part. His daughter, that character, Charlie's daughter, I felt was a very important part of this because, number one, there was the bonding between the daughter and, and Molly. And then there was... Uh, Idris, Chris is like, who's trying to care for his daughter. And there's that great line of dialogue. It's like, sometimes I think I'm far too hard on her. Goes, what do you, and he asked Molly, what do you think? Who's coming from an extremely stringent, hard father. Mm-hmm. And she goes, believe me when I tell you what I've seen in this world, you're not doing enough. <laughs> you know, if you want her to, to grow up. And it was the daughter who, who urged him to take the case because she actually had read the book. And the daughter realized that there's something there. Idris Alba's performance, I felt, was very good. I mean, he's a great presence. I didn't get the same sense with him going on too much. I, I actually loved that monologue. Um, yeah, he's just a very solid actor. And again, he's someone who could, he can act Aaron Sorkin's dialogue. What I loved about this, actually, for just the character development alone, for the whole movie, for like three-fourths of the movie, you can say for for Molly, at this point, Molly's been playing this game all by herself. She really has had no one 
on her team. It, mm-hmm. It's always been Team Molly. She's always looked out for herself. And then when he went on this monologue defending Molly, this like, okay, this is the one person who can actually back her up. It's the one person who's actually rooting for Molly besides herself. And I think that was just a great, uh, a great character development because, okay, she's not alone in this anymore. Yeah, and uh, it was a great arc yeah. because he realizes that. I, well, I think it's more than that simply because I think she could get people on her side, quote-unquote, right? She got Aaron Sorkin on her side in real life, you know? Well, that's what I'm so, so I think it was it, – it's the ability to change somebody. To, okay, you know what, I have this, just like Sorkin, I have this preconceived notion of who you are, but you're not that. It just, you, you got to work with me a little bit to get there faster. But, you know, when, when you peel away the layers, this is who you actually are, and I get it. Yeah, it was great. One of my other favorite scenes in this movie uh, was the scene, <clears throat> pardon me, is when uh, she first goes to trial to, to cop the plate. Arraignment. They, yeah, they were, and they're going... And, and and he's sitting there. Idris Elba is like going to the guy. Switch me. <laughs> Gets up to and that happens what like three or four times. But and it's more a than great, that. Yeah, yeah, it's no, a it great. Like it's a great scene. And it lit, number one, it was uh, levity. So, so it was levity. It was it was comedic. But at the same time, Chris is learning about the person who he is mulling about taking on, and then eventually says, "You know what? I'm going to take you on." Yeah. And I like then how you heard that part of it is he's mulling about what his now because you find it out later in the reveal that it was his daughter who read the book. He's mulling over what she said and hearing her and how she's poised. Uh, I think that I think it was great. I thought that was a great dynamic and it was a really well done scene. That's classic Sorkin. Well, for the daughter, the uh, Molly was was a hero. And you know, especially now even this movie's affected by the Me Too movement. And so, you know, in that sense, even back then, women needed heroes. And <laughs> an unlikely hero, but yeah. a hero to her. But yeah. it, it also speaks a lot when, like, when your daughter, realizing your daughter actually has a hero and looks towards Molly and, and like, as a positive figure, there has to be something about Molly that is, a, uh, like, appealing, that... Um, that Jeffy could get on board. So, like, I, I did like that connection. It, it, it took him a while to get there. Yeah. But he did eventually get there. But let us not forget, too, another big part of this movie was the interview that, that, that Molly's dad had. Who's your hero? Oh, I don't have any heroes. And yet we have this little girl who does have a hero, and it happens to be the person who didn't believe in heroes as a, as a child. Um, I find it funny that that part of how Idris Elba got his role is that it was Amy Pascal who, who had recommended him. And, and Sorkin had loved a, a five-episode arc the actor had done on The Office. It's a good <laughs> one. places. So um, I just find that that's, uh, that's very interesting. And yep. it's good for Idris Elba. Uh, you know, it's a good way to get a gunslinger. Away. Listen, he's done so many good movies and will he continue has. to do so many. And he's very, he's a, he's a good presence on screen. Um, yeah. so. Let's go back to Kevin Costner because uh, you brought up that interview. And initially, as I'm watching, I'm like, what the hell is this? This is the A, the creepiest thing I've ever seen for a birthday <laughs> celebration or whatever you want to call it. And B, who is this guy? The dad. And, uh, 
And you get that he's stringent and so forth, but why the hell he's doing this is beyond what I comprehended at the moment. And then when it comes back, I was just shocked. Yeah. I love this because also from the the psychological mentality of what his character was. He was a therapist, you know, a psychologist. And he, he studied, yeah, it would make sense that he would study his own kids in that way. Again, another Sorkinism, you can say, of setting up a, a, a storyline. And this is your answer. You, you have the quick interview, but it, when it comes back, it has a deeper meaning, knowing that when he studied his daughter, she was jaded and bitter and against the world. And there's a reason for that, which also explains why she had such a power struggle with men in her life. It made sense. Um, I, I think it was great. I didn't see it as creepy at all. I, I, I realized there, there was a bigger point to this. Yeah, no, I didn't find it as creepy only because, <clears throat> you may find this funny, uh, I listen to Howard Stern. And Howard Stern plays the old tapes of his father interviewing him. Who do you think should be president? Who do you think, uh, what do you think about the war? Mm-hmm. So I, I recalled to that for some silly reason because we've heard that play out and that those are real life uh, interviews that, that, that Howard's dad would do with his with himself and his siblings, uh, his sister. So in this movie, I found that to be, I was like, oh, wow, okay. So a father's interviewing the, the, the daughter. But I liked how it came full circle in which the father, Kevin Costner, says, I knew that you knew. And it was from those interviews. Uh, And you realize the reason for the treatment that that happened. So there was a self-reflection, too, over dad. Yeah, I think it was also just a great character development for Larry Bloom as well, because throughout the entire movie, we're as an audience a condition not to like him because he was so hard on Molly's like he, we know he's just a dick in mm-hmm. real life but to have that amazing scene on, on the bench in the park it's a great scene where like it was an amazing scene explaining everything but then at the end of it she, Molly's the one consoling her father and the audience is now feeling for the father where we shouldn't because he's been a dick this whole movie you're like, oh, man, that's just amazing when a character has a full arc in that way and you feel for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was a great scene. However, I mean, that was my one thing. However, so highly coincidental that, you know, he would be at the, the, the park skating rink at exactly the same time in, in a very crowded New York City. They well, found one another, but I, I forgive it. But, like, and the father thing, would know where their kids are. Here's the thing, right? Would figure it out. At first, I was like, wait, what the hell? But, and I thought maybe it was a mirage that she was thinking and That's so what forth. I thought too. But, you know, he has that line that, yeah, I know what's going on in your life. You're on trial. So, of course, I was going to come. So, in that sense, you know, whether he followed her or whatnot, you know, he's done his due diligence and, and whatnot. And at that point, I think he would have found her. I don't yeah. think it's a, it's not that, it's not a biggest stretch as I initially was like, wait, what? Yeah. Right. yeah. So. But, but this scene on the bench, like, uh, erases all that because it was just done so well. Again, uh, kudos to the actors who pull it off. They right. were able to pull it off. And Kevin Costner's dad, to your point too, he doesn't come off as being. There, there's a warm side to him, mm-hmm. previous than what we've seen from him before. And when he even says, like, I'm going to find this guy, I'm going to have somebody find this guy, and then I'm going to hire somebody else to kill this guy. No, you can't do that. No, he hurt my daughter. And 
I really love that scene too because that is a true protection of a parental love. Yeah, that's what I love because throughout the entire film, we see Larry Bloom as the therapist. And you never see him as the father. And this moment, you actually saw him being an actual father. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah. That's it where it pulls at your heartstrings. And that's yeah. why we ultimately feel for him yeah. at, at the end. I think it was a great character switch just in, you know, one person yeah. alone. But from going from someone who's so psychological, you know, mentality to someone who's actually just feeling as a parent, um, it was beautifully it, executed within a few minutes. And I did like, again... It was I'll, earned. It was very much it was earned. Very oh, earned. Oh, absolutely. And and I did like... It was, okay, I'm going to do for you what everybody asks for the therapist and never gets. Answers. <laughs> I'm going to give you three. And I liked... When he gave that first one about, yeah, you wanted to dominate over men. She's like, really? He goes, yeah, 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 really. And then when they get to the last two, he goes, yeah. she's like, yeah, but what about dominating over men? He goes, that was a red herring. He goes, I, 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 I threw that in there to grab you and to get you involved in this. And that was very fascinating because it turns true. that conversation to an extent. Yeah. I think the other two... Are the po- the like they're the positive where that one was the negative in a sense. I, I found again the 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 about face uh, is brilliant. It's very brilliantly written and performed. So let's let's shift gears a little bit. Um, still tying into Kevin Costner, but um, a great ally towards Kevin uh, to Aaron Sorkin in the making of this movie because he would give him tips of how to. You know, sometimes how to move the camera if he was involved and so forth. And the way he does it, he, he tried to do it in secret so that way Aaron looked good. And then Aaron would be like, that was Kevin's idea. Yeah. yeah. Well, also, Kevin, Academy Award winner, he, he's known for his directing as well. And I think that's just good for an actor to just help a fellow artist. You know, and we've seen it other times when George Clooney helped with some of the writing in, in Gravity. You know, like we, we've had those moments where other actors just help for the creative process, don't want to take credit because they are humble. They're, they're doing it for the art. Yeah, they are doing it for the art. They're doing it for the project. But it, when, when we're talking Aaron Sorkin and, and doing his first film, all right, uh, John Landis had said this. Uh, many people, uh, even Mel Brooks or even Burt Reynolds, you have to surround yourself with people who are probably going to be smarter than you to help you out. So when you put a camera somewhere, somebody's going to come up to you and say, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. You got to put it over here because the sun is going to wipe out your shot or something. So when Aaron Sorkin is coming on board as a, directing for the first time, he surrounded himself with extremely talented people uh, from both behind and in front of the camera. And when you get somebody like a Costner who has that experience, and it's not like, remember uh, The Accountant? We yeah. talk about yes. this. That director was like, uh, okay, Ben Affleck, you don't tell me what to do. It's like, dipshit, you might have, like, not that the accountant was horrible, but he might have had something to lend to you as a director who's had a claim as a director. Like, there could have been something, a gem. Those exact words, but yes. Yeah, but, but he basically said that to him. So when you have somebody like an Aaron Sorkin or any time who's directing for the first time, they're supposed to take a little bit of... Like, hey, for my cinematographer, how do I make this look? Like, what's the lighting? It's it's all part of the collaborative effort, <coughs> and uh, I got to appreciate the people who say I gotta, I can be good, but the other people are helping me look good. Mm-hmm. And and 
and I appreciated that, and, and even so much so when we talk about the the actual poker, they assigned six days worth of just poker shooting, which you know that's a that's a fairly large amount of time because they wanted each of those shots to look interesting, and uh, you know you pointed out earlier, Marissa, to be engaging. Yeah. It- and, then, and I love that during the production because they had so many. They just wanted real authentic shots and inserts and pushing all the the, the cards and the t- chips and all. They, they wanted to actually look like a real poker game. And they actually had their extras play real poker. They they did hire a lot of professional poker players to actually authentically look like they're playing poker. Yeah, and uh, Sorkin uh, did say, he goes, he reminded them. He goes, I reminded them that when we first got the set, I was going to cut a check to, for $2,500 to whoever had the most chips when we wrapped. And then I told everyone, guys, just play cards. Don't worry about your line. Don't worry where the camera is. He goes, they all want to be the best player at whatever table they were sitting at. At the end of the day, he says, those extras are the highest paid people on set. He goes, I think Michael Sarah left without his house. <laughs> so that, to High me... High stakes bidding. <laughs> so that, to me, was great. That, that, that's like a funny anecdote of... And again, this was within a week uh, or so of filming. I thought it was brilliant. I think it's hysterical. Yeah, and the fact that he could shoot that fast overall, because <laughs> even when we talk about the Idris Elba scenes with uh, Jessica... They were lightning fast, and you know, as far as you know, you, it's concerned with the dialogue. You have to nail it right, and so mm-hmm. to be able to do it in that short amount of time with a first-time director is phenomenal. Taking a quick step back, they had a bunch of meetings, and at first they wanted, of course, Aaron's going to go to uh, David Fincher. Uh, couldn't do it, but then they went through the entire list, and Amy's just like, I, I think the way he tells it. That was always going to be the end result that they were going to. They were just like, all right, let's just go through this list. And then, what about you? And then he had Christmas to really think it over. And And I like how he comes back and they're like, listen, the shooter get off the pot. What are you going to do? Are you going to direct this movie or not? And he's like, he said it was one of the most nervous parts of his life when he actually shook hands and said, I'm going to do this. And then he's like, how am I going to do this? (laughs) So uh, it's it's a really good story uh, for him. Uh, and and again, he he proved to be the good choice. I mean, he's been doing this whether on TV. He's been he's been blessed and graced to work with good directors and actors and actors yeah. uh, who get his dialogue. And in the movie business, he's had some really good people directing his words. Right, so. and it's not like he doesn't know the <laughs> the formula for television right. and and movies. He, he knows the structure. He knows how movies are actually executed. He's been on set. Sure. He, he knows it. And even Jessica Chastain gave him a hard time afterwards. She's like, "I'm so mad at you." And he's like, "Why?" He's like, "You." And she, she's like, "You could have been making movies this whole time, you know." Yeah. But like, you've always been writing. And and uh, Jessica Chastain herself even says she there there was no. Um, um, reservations of her saying yes to a quote-unquote first-time director because she knows that Aaron Sorkin knows the business, no movie structure, and she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm surrounded by an artist. There, There's no problem. It's Aaron Sorkin, man. Yeah, and in part, that's how like, he gets like, his cast. No problem. Because his reputation precedes him as a writer. Right. So, of course, we're going to give him his due diligence as a, uh, you know, of course, we're going to give him his due diligence as a first-time director. Um, you know, it, and he was as controlling and directing apparently as he is in his writing. So yeah. it was really interesting too when we talk about Ch- Jessica Chastain because apparently the story that he loved to talk about is there was a scene yeah. where Molly's supposed to go, mm, "I was a brat," 
And he would say, cut, cut, cut. He goes, Jessica, he goes, I need, I need five M's. You're only doing me about three. He goes, I need five. And she'd go, really? <laughs> so, but then she goes on to say, but, but her revenge on her was happened a little later, rehearsing a scene. And um, she says, uh, she said, the, she said, yeah. And he walks over and goes to her. He goes, that's not the line, Jessica. She goes, I've never written the word yeah in any one of my scripts. And she got the script supervisor over. She goes, really? Look. And there it was, yeah. <laughs> so he's like, just had to laugh it off. He's like, yeah. He's like, yeah. Yeah. But you, you will be wrong. <laughs> It's like, nah, he's so, right, he's, he does, he does. At least he had a sense of humor about himself, too, yeah. uh, in doing this. And uh, I, I think the people really wanted to perform for him. You know, they wanted to give him his best shot. Right, and Sorkin does say himself that every word is is very meticulous, very um, direct. And, and he says th- there's not... Uh, if there is a noise or just whatever mannerism, like, yeah, um, whatever, it's not written. And he says if it's not on the script, then it shouldn't be in the movie. Well, for clarity, I like that approach for non-comedies. For comedies, yes. the, sure. all bets are off. I yeah, agree. you gotta you got to play a little bit loose. I agree. But I also do love the importance of the word. Yes. And, and, and how important it is, the spoken word. Dialogue. We talk about this. So many people can get it wrong, but I love that there's the, there's something hinged upon the spoken word or the acted word. So, well, it, it, when you talk about, you know, we're talking about his directing, but as a writer, you know, what you have to appreciate is he's gone through the thro- thought process of why this person would say this, and so it's the listen. You, you just you're not really thinking about it. I've had plenty of time to think. So just do it this way. It's a very yeah. Alfred Hitchcock type of well, mentality. But, and, but. And, like Sorkin does have a rhythm in his writing. And you can see in every television show, every movie that we talked about, we talked about Steve Jobs and how fast sure. of a pace of movie that was, even though it was set yeah. in three structures. Newsroom. Oh, I love that show. It's so good. Uh, every dialogue, it's it's so fast-paced. It's like you have to drink a pot of coffee before <laughs> to just to keep up with Sorkin. I'm like, he's known for that. That is his fast-paced dialogue. If you can't keep up with it, then you're going to get lost. And you have to say it, too, because it also, you, you brought up Hitchcock. It also reminds me of a story when uh, Harrison Ford has told this story many a times when filming the very first Star Wars movie. And, you know, they'd be sitting around and Harrison Ford would be reading the script and I'm like, George, you can't say this shit. He goes, really? He goes, and George is like, Harrison, I want you to, I want you to do it as said in the script. Trust me. It'll come off. And they did it. And then look what happened. So in people, in Sorkin in particular, if he's putting his words together, he wants them done in a particular way. Again, it just goes back. I hate to be a broken record, but you've got to find the right people to do it, too. Even his television shows were perfectly cast. They've won so many Emmys, too. So good. For doing exactly what was written on page. But you need talent to do it. There's a timing involved, a cadence even. Yeah, there's a rhythm. For it to work. There's definitely a rhythm. And even with the voiceovers, those were really fast. And I'm I'm glad you can assume that they didn't actually have to memorize those because you could just be in an ADR booth reading a whole 10-page of dialogue and be fine, call it voiceover. And, but that had a fast-paced rhythm, too. Not once did it actually... I mean, I think the only moment where the movie slowed down was when she got beat up and she's, like, healing in her own mm-hmm. apartment suite. That's the only moment there's really no dialogue. 
Um, but everything else is like, go. Mm-hmm. One, well, like zero to a thousand, go. So th- there's a term I have, and I'm sure a lot of productions use it, um, block light shoot, right? And I, when you talk about that and, and with where we're going with it, block light shoot means you first block it, and then the actors go and get fully prepped while the lighting's happening, and then you shoot it. So as part of the block light shoot on this movie, People, the, the crew was just watching a play, and they they would just get standing ovations <laughs> for just the rehearsals, yeah, because it is it, it's a mini play of sorts, right? And you know you go through it for ten minute scenes, and it's like oh that's wonderful, right? All right, now let's actually do it. Yeah, yeah I think that's brilliant, and it's such a great muscle as an actor to have too, because if you remember, it's like theater and Broadway, the the actual ones that are acting out. People are acting out 120 page to 160 page dialogue every single night without going back to their script. They have to memorize 160 plus pages, mm-hmm. where this is like they had to do increments of 10. Yeah, there's a lot in 10, but it's not 160 pages compared to 100 right. compared to 10. So right. it's actually easy to shoot. It's easy to remember. Gilmore Girls. That's an, an example of very, very fast-paced fast dialogue, dialogue. which I love. I love that show, too. The actors themselves also had to study in a rhythmic pace of 10 pages of dialogue every single day because that's how much dialogue there was. Right. It, yeah. it, it's a known thing. It's very Shakespearean, isn't it? Yeah. Also, and well, soap operas, you know, they, they have to shoot 70 pages of dialogue a day. It, it's a sure. structure. It's a muscle memory. Yeah, but my joke with soap operas is like, Dimitri... Your uncle, who's also your mom, that the doctor slept with, and then you're like, huh? And then it's just like, and I, I just is your father? You, and I just look what? at you and go, uh, I'm not Dimitri. <laughs> <laughs> go away. Um, no, but it's, it's the exercise but, of memorizing so much in it, it, small in, amount of time. Too, and, and granted, too, it's the crew that you have and how they're being filmed and lit and and bringing whatever realism there is to it. So. Uh, yeah, he he put together a great team, and he even says nothing that the team that his collaborators he says nothing less than co-authors of the film. Mm-hmm. So you know, whether he decides to continue to direct or not, um, you know that that's fine. His debut uh, again. How many times have we watched a movie where it's a first-time director, and you sort of get the sense that? It's a first-time director. Only because they try to be maybe a little flashy and whatnot. Um, and, and not, I'm not necessarily saying they're making some bad movies, although there have been. But but his movie actually looked... There, there were times where I was like going, oh, this looks very David Fincher. Did, did, did he direct this? Like, he, he took cues from... Well, he also had a direct line to David and was like, hey, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do? So that that certainly helps, yeah. and uh, David being gracious enough to actually lend a device, which sure. of course he would. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin, Hello Social Network, fantastic movie. Sure. Also Academy Award winning. So you know, Aaron Sorkin has all the tools and the chops to to direct as right. well. Yeah, he's great. So um, I, and and we had a female again. Uh, we had a female cinematographer, Charlotte Bruce Christensen. Uh, Great job. Who worked on this? And she had worked on Fences, uh, Girl in a Train. Uh, she did Beautiful such a film. great, great job of doing this and and filming whether it was the poker scenes, but filming the you know filming the the Hollywood high end of it all, uh, the way that this was looked. And and you know it was shot digital digitally, 
But Christensen worked with Panavision, catch this, to find some 1960s, 1960s anamorphic lenses that provided the necessary depth of field and softness of the background when using a studio's space. A lot of this was filmed in a studio. So the movie set against the backdrop of the glamour, the size, and the, and the loneliness of the Colorado mountains, Hollywood, and New York City. And you got all of that. Yeah. Um, so, and the movie did look, the, the movie looked great. It looked cool the times it needed to. It looked yes. inviting in the times of especially the poker stuff. You, you kind of got sucked into it. Like, oh, they're having fun. I want to fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you definitely got the different worlds from compared to L.A. to New York. <laughs> L.A. was warmer, sunny, orange, browns. You know, the, it had a warmer feel to it. You know, as L.A. is, it's sunny out here. And compared to New York, it was like all white, all beige, all color, cold. It was cold. Um and it definitely helps with the personality shift. Yeah, and I loved how we go from that, what was it, the Crocodile Lounge or whatever that bar was. <laughs> the dive bar. To the Four Seasons. Mm-hmm. And look how much that game was upped. Look how much the event was upped. Um, and what she was able to do with it. Yeah, just the high stakes alone. She she went from like uh, what was it a five thousand dollar buy in, right? Compared to New York, which was she upped it to what was a hundred thousand buy in, right? It's like two, also even two fifty, yeah, yeah, even two fifty. Like she she more than doubled her. Like I can't do the math there, but like she she really increased it. Even I I think one of the funnier moments was the Monet painting as the buy in. Right. Uh, <laughs> no, you take that, that back. That's actual Monet. <laughs> um, and, and again though each casino that we saw from whether it be the the four seasons whether it be the plaza or whether it be the commerce casino uh where we see eustace that each one had its own different feel being you know the commerce casino i've been inside that casino that's exactly how it looks um the four seasons look like it could have come out of the bellagio um Except it was even more inviting than that. <laughs> so, uh, and then when she was at Trump, it did seem a little bit more, I want to say, Spartan. It wasn't as glamorous, but it was very power brokerish mm-hmm. uh, in there. And she had different clientele um, as well. Uh, I wanted to talk about quickly because I thought that he was great. Uh, Joe Keery, the kid from Stranger Things. Okay. Yeah. I was like, you know, there's all this talk about Millie Bobby Brown, Millie Bobby Brown. And I'm like, why are you like not focusing on some of these other kids who are equally as good? And this Joe Keery in Stranger Things, I thought somebody should snap him up and start using him in movies. And when I saw him in this movie, because of his hair, like you, he, he, you just, if you watch Stranger Things, you know who he was. You go, oh, oh that's yeah. the Stranger Things. Yeah, like, oh. oh, hey. And I was like, oh my God, good for you. Aaron Sorkin put you. Good for you, because you deserve. And in the small role that he has, like that scene was that that scene was great. Like when he was trying to pawn off the false chips, the fake chips. Yeah. He, that kid was good. Also, it, this was a great moment when like she's showing all the security cameras. Like, don't mess with me. I right. know how to play this game. You don't. And I think that was brilliant. I was like, yeah, this was probably one of the first power moves that she actually explained to the audience. It's like, no, I know what I'm doing. Don't mess with my game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I was like, yeah, you go, girl. But it was false. It was false. <laughs> yes. uh, all right. Uh, let's talk about music, shall we? Um, Daniel Pemberton, 
Uh, just also did recent. Speaking of Steve Jobs, he did Steve Jobs. <laughs> um, he's done a lot of things recently too. Uh, All the Money in the World, which we just talked about last week. Uh, the Man from Uncle, and then eh, maybe not so good one, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. But, but I like that one. That was a fun one. Uh, I think if he did a great so. job. Uh, we, we always talk about the moments where we remember it the most. I think there there was an amazing two. Well, two of my favorite. favorite moments where when she just got beat up in her own apartment suite and she's healing and the the editing goes like flash in flash out like right. go and it's all music it's all blue mixed with the music it was gorgeous and you felt for her you felt so bad for her beautifully done yeah i felt that the music never <clears throat> it, it never it never overplayed its hand <laughs> so to speak they it it was just the right tone. We're playing these poker games. It could have gone. It could have been way over the top, right? Like like to make this almost a circus kind of a you know yeah I'm all in and make it very fast paced editing and have the movie the music to match it. But it never it never reached that height. And I thought that that was very smart and well played. So. I think, yeah, totally. If the music overtook the scenes, the scenes would have just felt something like a sports... A sports game. A sports game. Like a sports movie. Which, this wasn't a sports movie. You know, this this was a really solid story. Yeah, and and Pemberton himself, who said about the score, he said, I wanted to write a bit more like the band writing the score rather than a sort of film composer. I approached it with more rhythmic rock way than a melodic traditional film composing way. So he says that that was really fun. You you felt some like rock. And there were some actual diegetic songs um, in the movie that spoke to the the early 2000s and just the time that they were living in. Absolutely. Uh, As far as promotion, it did a round, it did. In, on, in September, it did the Toronto Film Festival. Molly actually is banned in Canada, so she was given special 24 hours to be able to attend that premiere. And um, all the money in the world was actually supposed to be at the AFI Festival it, because of the things we talked about in that movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Check that out. I won't get into it. Um, it replaced this. So it had, you know, it had a circuit of two film festivals. This is great. It's interesting how Molly is banned in Canada, one of the nicest countries in the world. It's like, what does she do to best off the Canadians? It's well, just, all of this. Yeah, I know. Yeah. This is it's, the story. It's funny. It's it's actually comedic to think about it. Yeah. Um, overall, so we're we're towards the the end of January, and it's been out what a month and a half. Well, yeah. Month. I mean, its initial Christmas, release was, was Christmas, Christmas Day limited. for limited, and again, it was a very interesting. I think from marketing to the way they rolled this out, it was very interesting. Um, you know, it was almost as if STX was trying to figure out how to release this movie and how to market it. They knew that there was something there. Um, personally, I saw the trailer, and I was like, yeah, I'm in on this story. This, this looks like it'll be a really well-played story, and I, I, I'm already in on the, you know, the character scenes engaging. Um so I mean, all in. Uh, it, it, that's the thing. It's done twenty five million, and I feel it. It should be. I feel it deserves better mm-hmm. than that. Considering a movie that they platformed out, it got some decent recognition, and then it went wide. Uh, but even when it went wide, um, you know, we're looking at uh, it came in at number seven. Well, I know it's a tough time period. 
I think it's well. It, <clears throat> I think it's a tough time period simply because it was initially being carried by the Weinstein Company, and then that they you know they got the I movie back, that. and so Warner Brothers came in and stepped up, which is great. But you know well, you, you have to you have to readjust. I think, well, no, uh, Molly's Game was released by STX. I think you um, Paddington. Two that's was a Weinstein okay. movie, but but Molly's Game was STX Entertainment. Um, they're sort of uh, the new the newbies. They're still I still call them the newbies. They're they're a couple of years in their first movie, uh, mm-hmm. The Gift, which I thought was very well done. I believe we so covered good. that here. Um, and and here we go. And I uh, you know with Molly's Game, I believe they looked at it and said, well, we can perhaps get a Jessica Chastain nomination. Um, you know, Idris album maybe, uh, Aaron Sorkin for writing. Uh, so I think that's why the platform and the rush to get it out on Christmas Day. Uh, I just wish more people would go out and see this movie. I think it's relevant. I think it's a entertaining yeah. uh, story. Right. It's very well done. It's a good adult. It's a good adult rated R movie that has an extremely strong character. Uh, female character. What I and I, what I loved about this female character, and the way that Jessica Chastain portrayed her, is she, she was vulnerable. There was a vulnerableness to her, mm-hmm. and you saw that. And that, to me, makes any character, whether you're captain of a spaceship or not, if you don't have vulnerability, you can't. You can't. We can't all just be superheroes no. and have our our suits be taken away from us. There was a vulnerability to her that made her more real. A vulnerability and a likeness to her. Correct. Like, she had to be likable for us to follow Absolutely. her throughout the entire film. And Jessica Chastain is a very well-renowned actress now because of the role she, she's been in. She's been nominated for Academy Awards several different times. Um, like, she, she's an amazing actress in, her, in and of mm-hmm. herself. Also, I don't think that helps the movie either is because this movie wasn't released foreign. It's only domestic. So, yeah, don't base it off in the numbers because it's not making a lot – but to just base it off of the talent and writing alone. Well, I good. think part of the, you know, I think every everyone just dumps everything on December 25th and limited release. And then I think even I'm playing catch up. And so oh, I think yeah. that hopefully that plays into it. To what degree, percentage, I don't know. But, you know, there's plenty of Oscar-nominated movies that I've yet to see that I, I'm putting in the calendar. And, and anatomy and, is too, by the way. But you absolutely. But but the other thing too about this movie, when you when you look at reception on Rotten Tomatoes, I believe the at last check it was an eighty one percent. And again, solid. that's that's solid. I, I thought it might have been maybe a little higher. I read some of the reviews, the the negative ones, and it's like, what the hell movie did you see? Like this is just bashing. Like it, it, you're making no sense. Um, because I really think that this is. And there were parts of this movie too that I uh, made me think of American Made with with uh, Tom Cruise, right. another really good movie based on a true story that told me a story that I really wasn't familiar with. But the way that it was directed and performed, this movie had those elements in it because we had a little bit of humor, some of that bizarre, like that craziness going on. Uh, I think Molly's Game is far better than twenty five million in box office would lend. I think it's a better movie. Yeah. Well, we'll find out. I mean, uh, CinemaScore, it's getting an A-, so that's that's high, you know. Mm-hmm. 
certainly uh, it may not be an A, but that's certainly you know a B. The difference between an A minus and a B plus can be quite vast. So right. um, so hopefully people continue to go see it. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? this anatomy marissa um i really enjoyed it i'm a big fan of jessica and aaron put them together in a room and you create magic that is molly's game i would probably watch this again because there was so much that happened you're bound to miss something but i think it's just a well-paced well-acted well-written film that more people should see yeah agreed and and again it, it was about stuff that i didn't know and you know i'd seen winter olympics before i don't recall that family, the Brown family, uh, you know, right. I love that was the just really, that, yeah, that, that was just very fascinating to me that she was, she had potential to be a great <coughs> Olympic United States star. No. Uh, and this was her, the path, like you go, how does that happen? How do you do this? And this movie succinctly puts it in such a believable fashion, I'm sure like her book, um, that you just buy into it and you say, oh, okay. And how she, it's rags to riches in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, yeah. how do I, how do I go from losing that? And now I'm going to become this and do, and become an entrepreneur. Well, so, that's the beauty well of it all. And fail until you succeed and keep on failing. Just have the same enthusiasm. Uh, thank you guys as always for watching along or listening. Your comments are important to us simply because uh, when we talk about this movie it's not the end of everything you know we we talk there's plenty more that we could talk about and that we want to talk about but we want to talk about it with you so go ahead send us your comments your thoughts on the movie we appreciate it and speaking to the larger context of things here at anatomy we're going to get through all the Oscar nomination nominated <laughs> movies. Yes. We've already done some, so check those out. We will be doing more. In fact, next week um, we've decided we're going to do The Darkest Hour and I, Tanya. So you can look forward to those next week. And speaking of Steve Jobs and other Aaron Sorkin movies or even David Fincher movies, we've we've done – as long as we've been around, we've done them all. So, oh, yeah, yeah, actually. So check them out. <laughs> Steve Jobs. They're in yeah. our library no, but, for you to browse through. Yeah, we uh, And they're free, just like a library. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> We're so, there for posterity's sake. We'll see you guys out at D Movies. 17. At D Movies 1701. Support me on Twitter. I have uh, uh, I'm up to 13 followers now. But I think some <laughs> of them are robots or when I retweet stuff. Then I, I I literally like a meter, I could see it. I could see my my fanship drop. <laughs> it's, it's like, oh, okay, lost another one. <laughs> well, now I, I, I think you tease them so much that they're like, all right, we're just going to purposefully not follow you. Marissa. Um, at Serafini TV. And also check out our, our sister network, After Buzz TV. We cover the newsroom after show. Um, it's such a brilliant show. If you guys don't know Aaron Sorkin, watch the newsroom because that that is a relevant show that... Uh, definitely shows his his writing style and just like the, the relevance of his writing and of course i'm at phil svitek thank you guys as always we'll see you guys next time on another anatomy of a movie bye from producers maria menounos kevin undergaro phil svitek and the entire popcorn talk network we would like to thank you for tuning in for questions or comments be sure to visit popcorntalk.com I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.